what is the cathedral? What is the cathedral? The cathedral is essentially the reification of the legitimate sources of information. So the cathedral is essentially performing the functions that a ministry of truth would perform in a classic Orwellian, you know, environment. Um, and it's performing the functions that a religion would in a classic theocracy. Um, and what you essentially see when you look at the legitimate press today, uh, you know, one, one good way to see it is if you go on Wikipedia, you're like, where does this information on Wikipedia come from? The answer is it comes from reliable sources. And you'll, so you'll go to WP reliable sources and you're like, okay, what's, who decides what a, what's a reliable source? And actually you can read through that whole WP reliable sources page and it explains in actually very, very understandable English what a reliable source is. A reliable source is a source which is reliable. <laughs> and you're like, okay, uh, is there a mechanism for deciding that the New York Times is or isn't a reliable source or how can, you know, like, no. Right. You know, this is all basically, you know, it's arbitrary. It's grandfathered. It's basically the same kind of thing as saying, how is it decided that the Bourbons are actually the legitimate kings of France? The answer is they are. Right. And how is the New York Times the legitimate press? It is. And by virtue of being the legitimate press, it essentially um, um, it gets the best people. It's the most talented, you know, the people there are just a little notch above the Washington Post and a big notch above the Baltimore Sun. And and that's how the sort of merit meritocratic oligarchy works. On the other hand, we look at this and we see notice two puzzling things about this. One is that it's completely decentralized. OK, the Times is okay, it's first among equals. If it was destroyed by an asteroid tomorrow, the system would still exist. So it's not like it's the chief, you know, there's no kingdom there. Um, and number two is that all these outlets agree with each other. They are, um, as biblical scholars say, synoptic. And they are, as students of the Third Reich, you know, say, gleichgeschaltet, um, um, which means um, there's this term gleichschaltung, which students of Nazi Germany use, uh, which was also used in, actually by Nazis themselves, which means basically coordination. So everything in Germany basically becomes suffused with ideology. There's this great diarist of, of the Third Reich, Victor Klemperer, um, he was a Jewish philologist and he had a cat and he subscribed to, um, in 1931, he subscribed to a cat ma magazine and it was about cats. But by 1935, this magazine was all about the German cat, right? You know? And so when you basically see all of your cat magazines turning into the German cat, um, you're like, how does this mechanism work? Well, in Nazi Germany, it was fairly clear how this mechanism worked. You had a ministry of truth. It was called actually the propaganda ministerium and its head was a familiar friend, Joseph Goebbels. And if Joseph, you didn't print what Joseph Goebbels wanted you to print, he was like, no, actually your cat magazine is just about cats and it's not celebrating the new Germany. What's up with that? Maybe you don't believe in the new Germany. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, let's reflect on where we go with that, right? You know, and, and so that was a very straightforward way of basically making sure that everything you encountered was suffused with that ideology until you swam in it like a fish swims in water. Well, what you notice that's fascinating about our system is there's no coordination mechanism that it's all, that's at all like that. And yet that same coordination mechanism is unquestionably occurring. And even the fucking, if you're a you know, fan of English soccer, like, you know, they kneel to George Floyd at the start of every game in the Premier League now, right? <laughs> and you're just like, what? You know, um, um, 
probably in Mongolia, there are Black Lives Matter demonstrations. They've never even seen a black a black person, you know, and, and you know, um, you know, here they are wearing Bulls jerseys or whatever. And uh, I mean, um, um, so, yeah, you have this um, um, strange sense in which this thing is being homogenized, but it's clearly not being homogenized by pressure. And that's sort of very confusing. But the effect, I mean, essentially, let's imagine an alternate Third Reich where Goebbels comes in and the Nazis come in and they have the same structure as the Nazis, but they're actually good. And everything they do is say is right and good and pure and true. In that case, is it a problem that Goebbels is like, you know, tells, tells the whole art, you know, German cathedral, essentially, uh, everything you do must be Nazi. Well, if Nazi actually meant good and true, then you're like, how can I object to that? Well, it's just good and true, right? But unfortunately, it wasn't like that. And the, um, you know, similarly, if you assume that everything woke is good and true, then you can understand why people are doing this and why they want to coordinate, you know, turn everything in society into this ginormous megaphone. But, you know, that's not actually what's going on. It's not exclusively good and true. And it's actually kind of weird and creepy. And understanding how something can be weird. We Americans, basically, whenever we find something weird and creepy, we look for the king. We're like, okay, there, got, there's got, there has to be a George Third somewhere in here, right? Yeah. And there has to be a Goebbels somewhere in here. And we got to kill the king. You know, maybe it's the Jews, right, or whatever. It's, even when you're doing maybe it's the Jews, it's still a variant of that same reaction where you're basically looking for the central coordination point behind this. But actually, there's no central coordination point. So you're just wrong and you're just in a trap and your efforts are getting nowhere. So that's essentially the importance of thinking in terms of that's that's what I mean by the cathedral. What does it mean to be red pilled? What does it mean to be red pilled? Well, um, you know, uh, of course, that's a you know, um, I, I may have been. Uh, one of the one of the first, or possibly even the first, I'm not sure to steal that from the Wachowskis. I can tell you what it meant in the movie. Um, the um, um, the Wachowskis themselves, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, insist that it's all about being transgendered. Um, you know, one can certainly understand their perspective in that. Maybe that's what they meant. Um, you know, I can remember that when I was thinking of it. Uh, you know, I remember where I was when I had the idea of using this metaphor in the other direction, which is I was sitting in a coffee to the people, which is in the corner of hate and Masonic in the Kate Ashbury in San Francisco. And it's this, um, it's actually owned by Chinese people, I think, but it's covered with, because, um, the espresso was terrible. Um, never buy espresso served by anyone who doesn't drink espresso, but, um, the, um, um, in any case, great place to work near where I lived at the time. And, um, it's covered with leftist propaganda stickers from like the sixties. And so I was like, you know, okay, what would happen if you basically turned this thing around and actually to be right wing was to be red pilled, which is clearly very far from the intention of that movie and still more it's absolutely execrable sequels and um i you know and and so um you know that's sort of what it meant to me what it meant to me was first of all sort of completely a complete negation of um kind of the whole frame of thinking about politics and history that I was brought up in, which really, you know, had to be every bit 
the equal of sort of the frame breaking that you would have to do if you'd grown up grown up under Soviet communism. Right. And so, you know, that's quite a bit of frame breaking. And the way these systems work is you sort of break a piece of the frame and you think you've gotten it all right. <laughs> and then you're like, it actually goes deeper. In fact, you know, one of the things that that really broke my brain is um, one thing I picked up at a used bookstore once was a stack of this magazine called Soviet Life, which turned out to have been printed in this bizarre 70s detente deal in which we would print copies of Life magazine and distribute them in the Soviet Union. And then the Soviets would print copies of this thing, Soviet Life, which were written in English and distribute them in America in like the 80s. Right. So here's these 80s magazines. And first of all, they're like 80s leftism is just pure 80s leftism. You're just like, wow, this is 80s progressivism. Like, the, you know, we are seeing the world through 80s progressivism printed in Moscow. Right. Um, but the more interesting thing was they had all sorts of, you know, uh, you know, articles about the past as well. And then you suddenly realize with a shock that the Soviet pre the Soviet 19th century is exactly the same as the Western 19th century. Right. And the thing is, you're looking at two sort of forks of one tradition. This thing is still coming out of the Western liberal tradition. And so it has the same heroes and the same villains and the same. You're like, this is just another branch of the same fucking story. And if I was in the Soviet Union, I was like, the Soviet 20th century is crap. I'm like, maybe the Soviet 19th century is crap, too. Right. <laughs> and um, and then that, at that point, you sort of realize how much frame breaking there is to do. And so, you know, when you think of. Um, that said, I think the sort of folk understanding of the red pill is very different. I think the folk understanding of the red pill is basically like, I'm a 15 year old, I am in high school, I hate this shit, I hate all this fucking bullshit, fuck all this shit, I'm wearing my like black trench coat to school every day, um, you know, I'm the verge of like, you know, I hate my like, you know, uh, social studies class so much, I'm on the verge of like cutting a swastika on my forearm, right, you know, and then I go to my counselor, guidance counselor, and I'm like, I hate this crap, what is this crap, I can't fucking stand anymore, this fucking woke shit anymore, tell me what the opposite of this is, and she's like, whoa, it's very simple, if you're not into this, you're into Hitler. And what does your 15-year-old kid do? He's like, right, what, what, what the fuck is he going to do? Have you ever been 15? Right, you know, so you'd be like, where are all these teenage Nazis coming from? Gee, I don't know, you know. But basically, you fed them crap, and then you were like, the alternative to this crap is Hitler. And then you're just like, why is everybody into Hitler? Well, you know, geniuses. Um, that was a sure great way to be anti-fascist. Wow, you know, any more anti-fascist than that? And we'll have fucking Reinhard fucking Heydrich as the next fucking president, you know? And um, the, uh, that's uh, so those are kind of, in a way, the two meanings of, of red pilled for me. And so I naturally, um, you know, I, I love um, you can go out and find a, a, a this wonderful four hour podcast of me. Um, 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 chatting, chatting with the Nazi, um, a Borzoi known as Tedward Wang, great guy. Um, and, um, we have an hour long conversation about the Holocaust. You know, it's like, I love, I love, I love doing outreach to these people. Right. You know, I'll, I'll get it like Holocaust deniers, like call me, we'll get into it. Um, and, um, the, the, like, which of course is actually the thing is that real, real Holocaust scholars actually do that, which is one way you can tell the Holocaust is real. They don't like run away from it in the, in the traditional lib way. Um, and, um, you know, but like the approach of like, you know, 
we're going to like insist to you that all this crap is true when it's obviously crap. And then when you try to argue with us, we're going to run away. Like, you know, that's like, it's just such a terrible way to deal with like a rebellious 15 year old. Um, and, and so it's just absolutely no surprise, no surprise that these kids are all carving swastikas in their forearms or whatever. I don't blame Hitler for that. I blame you for that. Ms. Guidance counselor. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that those are those are the two meanings of red pill. You had a third question? If we can, final, if we can go real. Sure. Yes, final question. The left and right disagree on a wide range of unrelated issues: immigration, global warming, gun control, abortion, um, you know, voter fraud. Why is it that on so many unrelated issues, you'd think there'd be overlap, but there isn't? What do you think is the heart of the left and right disagreement? Uh, I think I don't think leftists like. Thinking in terms of issues is basically this kind of model of the like marketplace of ideas that comes out of like 19th century English liberalism. I think the more, um, you know, correct way to think about it is to think about, first of all, these aren't, you know, different sets of like opinions. These are different social groups and different social classes either, even. And so the question when you were like, who believes in what issues are more, what ways of thinking flourish in these different social classes, right? And when you look at the way our ruling class, in which I have the privilege and the honor to be grow up, to be brought up in, um, you know, which is not necessarily economically rich. I wasn't brought up economically rich, but I was brought up sort of politically and socially rich. Um, is that, um, or at least that was a legacy admit to an Ivy League school. Uh, it's amazing how much, how many points you get for being a legacy admit, by the way. It's like being black. It's fucked up. Um, and um, uh, it's like way bigger than I thought it was when they actually studied that. It's so basically being from the scene, I can tell you why the ideas that circulate well in the left circulate well in the left. It's because basically these are powerful ideas and they make you feel important and powerful when you believe them. It's like, you know, gun control, for example, it, you know, the very good example is basically, we talked about this earlier, gun control makes you feel powerful because you're participating in disarming the enemy army, right? Mm. You know, and whenever you look at an idea that's basically popular among the left, you can basically always trace it to this idea, you know, sort of brings forth power. And in fact, they go, you know, easily back and forth on, um, you know, like you can always derive, you can generally, you can always work backward from the issues to the sort of the force behind the issue. And you can also work sort of forward on that. And one thing you can do is you can look at issues where at different phases in this, they've taken different sides of it. For example, you might you remember that Donald Trump is a nationalist and that's bad, but you might also have heard that Ho Chi Minh is a nationalist and that's good. Um, you know, you might even heard that Mussolini is an Italian nationalist and that's bad, but Garibaldi was an Italian nationalist and that's good. So what is this? Is two good nationalism and bad nationalism? What's going on? Right. My favorite example of this is in South Africa in the early 20s. There was a general strike of mine workers who at the time were all white mine workers called the Rand Revolt. And you can see actually in pictures of the Rand Revolt, which was a Communist Party of South Africa, you know, job. Um, of course, the Communist Party of South Africa is later the party of Mandela. But this was it was a white party at the time. And in fact, it was such a white party that you can see people. Um, with picket signs in pictures of the Rand Revolt and they're marching around with picket signs that say workers of the world unite to keep South Africa white. 
And so essentially, you're just like, these motherfuckers will believe in anything. And um, they'll believe in anything, right? You know, they'll go full racist. One of my other favorite examples is we were talking about Dr. Seuss earlier. Well, if you look at Dr. Seuss's wartime and even pre-war cartoons, Dr. Seuss did some of the most racist, racist art that's ever been done. His caricatures of like Japanese people would be like, I mean, you would you would be arrested for that now. I mean, in England, like you would literally be arrested and in America, you would be kicked out of college. Right. Um, and this is Dr. Seuss. And, you know, but sure enough, the U.S. is fighting against fascist Japan in World War Two. And it's like any port in a storm. Like if you get, can get people to be more anti-Japanese by making them racist, go ahead, we'll fix it later. Right. And, and, and so when you look at sort of where these issues come from, they come from a certain kind of political psychology. And then, of course, when you look at the issues that prosper among the American right, those are also issues that um, that make people feel powerful, but they make people feel powerful, not in the sense of um, uh, essentially to the left power is an end, whereas to the right it's a means to an end. And that's basically why the left always wins and the right always loses. Um, and, and when you like, when you look at sort of these issues, I, you know, it's much better to see politics in terms of persons than issues and still better to see it in terms of power structures. Um, and so when you look at these issues, you're just like, this is something that sort of falls out of the power structures and if by the way you're in politics to win on issues you're already know you're going to lose you know um and the whole way of you know the whole sort of lib ethos is they get people to think about these issues but what they're feeling is the sense of being part of this thing that's coming together to to wield power Whereas the right in America that certainly as you go deeper into the, like the GOP established right, you know, like the the justices that Trump appointed that just voted voted against him. They're like anything. It's the farthest possible thing from their minds to say we're here to win power for the right. That's not how these people think at all. And that is why they would vote. And, and they're absolutely sincere in that. They're like, we're here, you know, to fix the republic. They believe that the republic is fundamentally good and true and, you know, divinely ordained uh, uh, and um, has, um, um, you know, has certain problems. It has some issues, but, you know, they're here to fix it. Right. And they're going to fix it. And there's going to like America is going to be America again and we're not going to have abortion and, you know, whatever. Right. And this is how they're thinking. They're thinking like repairmen. And so, in fact, what they're doing is they're basically trying to repair something that that they can't repair that actually they should be trying to demolish. And that has basically most American conservatives working in exactly the wrong direction, which is, you know, as we've been saying all afternoon is essentially how, what you do when you're in a trap and what you need to do when you're in a trap is basically think about how your instincts are almost certainly leading you deeper into the trap and you need to override those instincts with your forebrain and think tactically and think in a Machiavellian way. And you're like, how can we all work together to get out of this trap rather than following our instincts deeper into it? Make sense? Excellent. Again, right. check him out at graymirror.substack.com. You will see the link in the description. Mr. Yarvin, thank you so much for being so All generous right. with thank your time. Thank you so much, Mr. Knight, and have a have an absolutely great day. You too.